If I say the name Jesus, I wonder what picture comes to your mind. Maybe the first thing you think of is a baby, a child in a manger surrounded by animals and shepherds. Or maybe you think of a man in a robe, sitting on a hillside, teaching, surrounded by children. Maybe you think of a physically broken man hanging on a cross, half dead, with a crown of thorns pressed down on his head. It could be that something else comes to your mind when I say the name Jesus, but I would guess those three pictures are fairly common. And all three of them are found in the New Testament. They are accurate pictures. But... None of them picture Jesus as he is today. They show us Jesus at the beginning, the middle, and the end of his life on earth. But the New Testament goes to great lengths to tell us Jesus' life did not end with his execution on a cross. Yes, he did die. The Roman soldiers were professionals, and they did their job well. Jesus did die. But the New Testament wants to persuade us that Jesus, who was laid dead in the tomb, didn't stay dead. He defeated death and came back out of the tomb alive. I'm not going to spend time this morning on the evidence for that. You can read it for yourself in the four gospel accounts of the New Testament. But what I do want us to think about is this. How are we to picture Jesus as he is now? Today, he's not a baby in a manger, nor is he a teacher on a hillside or a broken man on a cross. Those are all true pictures, but they are pictures of Jesus in the past. Does the New Testament give us an up-to-date picture of Jesus? The answer is yes, it does. And we're going to look at that for a few moments. And here is why this up-to-date picture is important. It's important because if I'm always thinking of Jesus as a figure of the past, I'm going to have a hard time seeing what he has to do with my life today. But if I can begin to see him as he is, then maybe I can start to understand why my relationship to Jesus is the most important issue in my life and your life too. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. If you're using one of the green church Bibles, that's page 1233, or in the larger print Bibles, 1913, book of Revelation. Any of you who are not familiar with Revelation, as we begin to read, it will immediately strike you that this book is a bit different. It's full of striking images and symbols, but these are not images and symbols that are out of the blue. If we started reading at the first page of the Bible, by the time we got to Revelation, we'd realize this last book of the Bible is picking up on all that has gone before in the Bible. It presents Jesus as the answer 
to the problems raised in the rest of the Bible. It presents Jesus as the fulfillment of the expectations raised in the rest of the Bible. So let's read from Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 9 and reading down to verse 18. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is God's word. As I said earlier, Revelation is a bit different. But if we're willing to look carefully, this passage shows us the living Lord Jesus. The most significant person any of us will ever meet. And one day we will all meet him. But you'll have noticed the first person we meet in this passage is not Jesus, it's John. In verse 9, John tells us he was on the island of Patmos. Now, to our modern ears, that sounds quite exotic. And so we might wonder if John is there on holiday. But in fact, at this time in history, Patmos was a prison colony. John is a convict sent to work in the stone quarries on Patmos. And he tells us how he ended up there. It was because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is a follower of Jesus, and he shared the message of Jesus with others, and he lives in a time and place when that sort of thing can land you in prison, spending your time breaking rocks. If you're a visitor this morning, I don't know what ideas you have about Christianity, but here's one thing to realize. 
The Bible never promises Christians will have an easy life. Rachel and Marie are not getting baptized today because they expect their problems and difficulties are going to magically melt away. Here in England, we don't expect to end up in prison for following Jesus. That's true. But we can expect to face all the normal challenges of life, just like everyone else does. The living Lord Jesus has not promised us an exemption from real life. Neither has he promised to be a genie in a lamp who makes all of our wishes come true, or even a select number of our wishes. Those are mistaken ideas about Jesus. This passage is here to give us an accurate picture of who he is and what he has promised. John tells us he heard a voice. He turns to see who the voice belongs to. And in verse 12, he sees not a person to begin with, but seven golden lampstands. Verse 11 had listed seven churches. And the last verse of this chapter tells us the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John is being given a symbolic vision And in this vision, the lampstands represent the churches. By the time John was writing, there were more than seven churches. But the number seven is often used to represent completeness. Even outside the Bible, you'll come across that. So these seven local churches stand for the whole church. All of Jesus' followers around the world including those like John who are suffering for their faith. But as John continues to look, he sees someone among the lampstands. In other words, these followers of Jesus are not alone. They haven't been left to their own devices. Their light hasn't been left to flicker out and die. Someone is tending these lampstands. Someone is keeping them supplied with all that they need to keep shining. Who does John see? Well, I said earlier, the images and symbols in Revelation are not out of the blue. They pick up on what has gone before in the Bible. So if we came to this after reading the Old Testament, the images would be familiar to us, but they would also be surprising to us. Why? Well, the background to these next few verses is the Old Testament book of Daniel, a book that was written hundreds of years before this. Daniel was shown visions of two separate figures. He saw one like a son of man, so a human being. And he saw the Ancient of Days, Almighty God. But here in John's vision... John sees just one person. Both of Daniel's figures are combined into one. A man who is God. That is who Jesus claimed to be. That's why the religious leaders had him killed. Because what he claimed for himself was blasphemy. Unless it was true. And now John sees... The risen Jesus, the God-man, and he is tending his people. He is with them. He is working for them. 
and all of the challenges and difficulties that they face. And then in the next verses, Jesus is described for us. As we look at this, it's important to realize this picture is telling us truths about the character and the position of Jesus. We are not supposed to take this as a literal description of what he physically looks like. We'll see shortly it's just about impossible to take it that way. This is showing us not what Jesus looks like, but who he is. Different aspects of who he is. So yes, picture this in your mind. Let it teach you about who Jesus is. But don't expect to meet someone in heaven who has a sword coming out of his mouth, whose voice sounds like a waterfall, and whose feet are on fire. We know from the gospel accounts, the risen Jesus had a real, recognizable human body. This visionary picture is describing different aspects of his majesty and his power. In verse 13, John sees Jesus dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. In Roman society, the longer your robe, the higher your rank. Only the emperor had a robe that went all the way down to his feet. But the risen Jesus has higher rank than any human ruler. John sees he also has a golden sash around his chest. In the Old Testament, that was the high priest's uniform. The high priest was specially commissioned by God. And so John is being shown the living Lord Jesus has divine authority. Then in verse 14, the hair on his head is white like wool, as white as snow. In our society, the elderly are increasingly treated as if they're past it. But as far as the Bible is concerned, the aged are to be honored for their experience and for their wisdom. And here, that wisdom and experience are symbolized by white hair. In other places, the New Testament says Jesus possesses all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As the living Lord, he tends his people, and he will never miscalculate as he does that. He will never misunderstand their situation or their needs. His wisdom and his knowledge are perfect. But in case the white hair makes us think Jesus is somehow weakened with age, notice the end of verse 14. It tells us his eyes are like blazing fire. Jesus is not weak and watery. He is full of life. His perfect wisdom and experience are joined to unfailing vitality. His feet, verse 15, are like bronze glowing in a furnace. Or we might translate that refined in a furnace. He is perfectly pure. There are no hidden agendas with Jesus. No sly tricks. No dark secrets. Jesus is perfectly trustworthy. There are no blemishes or impurities in his character. And his voice is like the sound of rushing waters. 
It is a voice of fearsome majesty and power. Verse 16 says, In his right hand he holds seven stars. The last verse of this chapter tells us the stars represent angels, spiritual powers. And here we're being told those spiritual powers are not a law unto themselves. They are in the power of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to say they are in his right hand. They are perfectly under his control. No power in heaven or on earth can outflank or outmaneuver Jesus. He holds them all in his hand. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp, double-edged sword. Here is proof we're not being given a description of what Jesus literally looks like. This picture is describing who he is. So what does this tell us about him? What is the significance of the sword in his mouth? It simply means he is the judge. His word rules. He pronounces the definitive verdict over every single one of us. His word is like a two-edged sword. It will either acquit us or it will condemn us eternally. His verdict is the only verdict that truly matters for any of us. And his face is like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Have you ever tried to stare straight into the midday sun? You can't. Well, here in the UK, the midday sun is hiding most of the time. It's hiding at the moment. But when you go somewhere where the sun doesn't hide, you cannot stare at the sun without burning your eyes out. It's wonderful for you and I to know that Jesus shares our humanity. But let's never forget, he is not the same as us. He blazes with the full glory of Almighty God. Like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. The living Lord Jesus has perfect wisdom, purity, and power. If you and I were shown what John has just been shown, we would react the way John reacts in verse 17. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. A true glimpse of Jesus in his majestic glory will sober us and it will humble us like nothing else can. The living Lord is not good old Jesus, our mate. Nor is he an interesting topic for us to debate and analyze and pass judgment on. Of course, there is a place for investigating Jesus. But once we come to any true sense of who it is we're dealing with, we will begin to sense our own lack of purity and wisdom. We will be ready to admit our own grubbiness. 
We'll admit we don't measure up to our own standards, never mind God's standards. As we begin to see who Jesus is, we will have to acknowledge we are dealing with the one whose eyes see every corner of our hearts. The one whose word decides our eternal future. And we will be ready to bow before the living Lord Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope you can begin to grasp the New Testament was not written to take its place on the shelf as one book among many others. The New Testament was not written for religious people who are into that sort of thing. It was written so you and I would see Jesus for who he is and bow the knee to him. And when we do that, we discover he is the savior of those who bow. Look what happens. Look at Jesus' response to those who bow in worship. John says in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades meaning death and the grave. A glimpse of God's glory is always going to sober us and humble us, but it need not crush us. Why? Because the one who holds the keys to our future is also the one who died to free us from our sins. That was explained in the first part of Revelation chapter 1, the bit we didn't read this morning. If we are trusting in Jesus as the one who died in our place, taking the punishment we deserve, if we're committed to living for him as our Lord, then we don't need to fear his word of condemnation. We can face life and we can even face the grave with absolute confidence. Not in ourselves, but in Jesus. We can face life and the grave with confidence because our Savior has taken care of our eternal future. He's got the present under his care as well. If we bow in willing worship of Jesus, we don't need to fear the grave, and we don't need to fear the years between now and the grave. Whatever twists and turns our lives might take, whatever darkness and disappointment comes into our lives, the living Lord Jesus is for us. As Christians, he is among us. Jesus is not a genie who grants us our every wish. And we can be very glad about that. Because most of the time, you and I have no clue what is really best for us, do we? But Jesus tends our lives with his own perfect wisdom, purity, and power. 
He will work for our good even in our deepest distress. When we bow before Jesus in repentance and faith, then we discover this God, this God of blazing glory, is in fact our God. And his power and authority are for us, not against us. As Rachel and Marie are baptized this morning, they are not standing up here saying or claiming to be better than anyone else. They're not saying, look at me, aren't I a good person? No, they're standing here this morning saying, look at Jesus. They're testifying to the life-changing power and love of Jesus. They have turned their lives over to him, acknowledging his divine authority, seeking his forgiveness, and they have found him to be all that this vision declares him to be. The Savior who died for their sin, who is risen again as Lord of all, and who says to weak sinners like us, Do not be afraid. I hold the keys. The power of eternal life and death is in my hand, and you will share my resurrection life forever and ever, starting today. So if you are not a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you, take the time to find out more about him. Speak to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you. Speak to someone else who's a Christian. Ask them to help you. But now, before we have the baptisms, we do have an opportunity to respond in worship to this Lord we've just been thinking about together. It's taken from these verses, Behold the Lord upon his throne.